Before I get going, I want to say thanks to the men of this church. As Matt said, we have uh, 92 ladies at our women's retreat right now that's wrapping up, probably right about now, actually. And, uh, and so we challenged our guys on our retreat, which was like six months ago. And we said, all right, guys, so here's the deal. The ladies are going to have one of these in October, and we've got to make it happen for them, and you've got six months. So get ready. Figure it out. Whatever needs to be done, just help your wife go on this retreat. And it's clear that our guys got the message. Most of them showed up last night for our Saturday night service. We offered free food and free child care, and they came in droves. It was unbelievable, and uh, and was wonderful, and was a lot of fun, and and got to enjoy uh, the new parking lot and playground and and all of that. So that's a wonderful investment in your wife, in your family. It's a wonderful investment in this church and in the community. It's really great. So thanks, thanks for doing that. All right, as we come now to the Word of the Lord to receive His wisdom, continuing through this rhythm of grace, we continue as well with this study of the book of 2 Corinthians that we've been in for a while. And I thought maybe instead of just jumping straight back into the text and picking up exactly where we left off last week, I'd stop for a minute and rehearse some of the history between the Apostle Paul and this church in the city of Corinth that he planted. And, and the reason that I want to do that is twofold. So number one, I want to do that because I think it's going to help you understand the passage of Scripture when we get there. In other words, if I don't do this, you're going to be thinking, what is he talking about? So it'll be helpful in that regard. But it's helpful, secondly, because it really does a great job of setting up the issue that we're going to be talking about today. And the issue is simply this. It is that the hard words of the Bible, it is that the difficult words of the Bible, let me be as plain about this as I possibly can. Those parts of the Bible that we all kind of know are in there and don't want to hear. Those words are the most beneficial words. They're the most freeing words. They're the most liberating words. They're the most needful, therefore, words. They're the most life-giving words. I mean, just think about it for a second, even in terms of the gospel itself. Listen, the gospel at least doesn't start out very friendly, does it? Like God comes to us and He says, hey, listen, bad news. And here's the bad news. You are a lot worse than you thought you were. Really? That's the gospel. Like the, our culture comes to us and says, no, 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 you're great. In fact, you even get to decide what great is. God comes and says, oh, no, hang on a second. Don't compare yourself to your neighbor. Don't turn on the TV and watch the news and go, I think I'm pretty good. Okay, well, yeah, relatively speaking in that regard. But God comes to us and says, no, 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 I am your creator. I created you to live for me. And I created you to live for me as perfectly as I live for me. And suddenly, not so good. So the gospel comes and says, okay, listen, bad news. You are not nearly as good as you thought you were. But it doesn't stop there. It's not a condemning word. Why, why does God say that? To lead us to Christ. Hey, that's the bad news. And the good news is that God in the person of Jesus Christ has perfectly obeyed God's own law and He did it for you as your substitute. And more than that, through His sufferings, through His death, through His burial, through His resurrection, He has defeated all of your sin. He has defeated all of your death. There is forgiveness and life found through faith in Him. Bad news, not nearly as good as you thought you were, and that's a problem. Good news, God Himself at His own expense has solved the problem for you and freely offers the answer to you in Jesus Christ if... What happens if God takes that gospel message and works in us, as Paul's going to talk about in this passage, what's called a godly grief? And what does a godly grief produce? It produces repentance. And what does repentance produce? It always issues forth 
in a change of orientation, in a change of life. The word repentance literally carries within it the idea of turning. And the idea is we're turning from sin, we're turning from idolatry, and we're turning toward the Lord Christ. And by the power of His Spirit, in obedience to His Word, in community with each other, we are learning, stumbling along, no doubt, as we go, but we're learning to follow Him, to live for Him. So look, the hard words of the Bible, the difficult ones, the ones you don't want to hear about and you know exactly which ones those are, don't you? I mean, we all do. Yeah, man, those are the ones we need the most. Those are the most helpful ones of all. Those are the ones that are the most freeing, the most liberating, the most life-giving, and ironically, particularly for those of us who least want to hear them. Why? Because we are the ones who are most bound by the very thing that those words are designed to free us from. So they're the best words in an odd and ironic way, but only if we submit to them. Only if we stop coming to God's Word and looking at His Word and all of the words, hard and difficult, and and those who are not so hard and difficult and picking and choosing amongst them as though we ourselves stand above the Word of the Lord. But instead, if we see Him for who He is, we see ourselves for who we are, and we put ourselves beneath His Word, and we submit to that Word, and we say, Lord, speak for Your servant listens even if I don't want to hear it, and good grief, You know exactly what that is. And so... And then we let the Spirit take those difficult words and produce a godly grief that produces repentance, that leads to real and lasting and authentic life change. So that's the big idea for today. And with that big idea in mind, now what I want to do is just kind of back up for a second and go, okay, so what's the history between Paul and this church? Because it's going to help you understand all of this. And the history is basically this. The Apostle Paul went as a missionary to the city of Corinth. And in the city of Corinth, he spent a year and a half of his life planning a church. And the single greatest challenge facing Paul and all of these brand new Christians who were coming to faith through Paul's evangelism was idolatry. It was idolatry. Corinth was rampant with idolatry. It was literally filled with temples built to all of these different pagan deities. And what makes it even more complicating, and significantly so, is that all of these different temples, as we talked about months ago, served effectively as the restaurant system for the whole city. So like we in Fort Lauderdale have lots of restaurants, lots of options, they had lots of temples. And just like our restaurants, they served breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacks, come by anytime you want is the idea. But the difference is that they served those meals as a part of the worship of the deity for which the temple stood. So that's a difference. And they also had temple prostitutes. That too is a pretty significant difference. But you can imagine the inconvenience of being told that, yeah, you, you can't, you just, you can't, you can't do that. That's just, yeah, that's crazy. You can't, you can't go there. You can't eat there. You, you can't participate in what they, pre- I mean, think about that for a minute. Like if I came to you just with restaurants and I said, okay, so here's the deal. I found this new verse in the Bible. It doesn't exist, but imagine with me. And it says, thou shalt not eat at restaurants. All right, here's what I think at least some of you would do. I, I think you'd be nice enough to stick around until the service ends because, you know, I mean, you're nice people and, and all of that. And then I think you'd go to lunch at the Cheesecake Factory and figure out where you want to go to church next week because that's just, that's just crazy, isn't it? And then the rest of you, here's what the rest would do. The rest would say, ah, you know what, man, I, you know, I love Rio and it's my church and I'm, I'm good with like ah, 80, 85%, 90% of the message. And that's just part of the message I'm going to disregard. And you'd come back. 
Effectively, that's what these people did. This idolatry was ingrained in their culture. It was a part of who they were as a people. Everyone did this, and everyone called it right and good. Everyone affirmed it. Can you imagine how inconvenient it would be to not be able to go to restaurants? So what they did was, they waited for Paul to leave, he planted his church, he delivered the hard word, he went off to plant other churches, and at least a small group of them, actually a pretty sizable but minority faction of them, said, oh, thank goodness he's gone, because I have been dying for the meatballs at the temple of Zeus, you know? Who's going with me to lunch? And they all took off, okay? Fell right back into it. So what happens is, Paul hears this. And he writes to them a letter that we know as 1 Corinthians and that we've all studied that in large part deals with this issue. And he places it almost certainly into the hands of Timothy. And Timothy then hand delivers this letter as Paul's emissary to the people in Corinth. While Paul back in Ephesus is going, hmm, I wonder how it's going. I wonder how they're going to respond. Well, we don't know exactly what happened, but we do know that when Timothy came with a word from Corinth and he showed up at Paul's door, here's what Paul did. He dropped everything. He got on a boat. He went directly to Corinth to visit these people in person. And it did not go well. He calls this his painful visit. Why? Well, the best reconstruction of the facts that we have suggests pretty strongly that there was an individual, a person in that church in the city of Corinth who then rounded up a minority faction of that church to oppose Paul in person while he was there to talk to them about this issue. So that's part of the problem. The other part of the problem is that the overwhelming majority of the people, all the rest of the church, didn't do anything about it. I mean, Paul's appealing to them and going, come on, guys, you need to deal with this man who's leading this revolt and who's causing all of these people to sin. And they said, ah, you know what, Paul, here's the deal. Like, we agree with you and we've given up going to temples and we miss the meatballs at the temple of Zeus too. And it's been a bummer, I'm not going to lie, but... This is not worth blowing things up over. Like, you know, this guy's the brother-in-law of so-and-so. And and I mean, this is going to cause a big rift here. It's not that big of a deal. Why don't you just kind of chillax? This is what we do as Corinthians. I mean, it's part of our culture. It's who we are. I did this all of the time before I came to faith in Jesus. And I'm massively inconvenienced by not being able to do it. So, look, appreciate your passion, but we're not going to do anything about this. So Paul left very defeated. And instead of returning in person as he said that he would, he said, no, it'd be better if I just write him a letter. So he wrote him a letter that we don't have. It's not 2 Corinthians, it's a different letter. And he wrote the letter, and this time he sent it by the hands of Titus, another one of his lieutenants, a disciple of Paul, like Timothy. And Titus this time, because I guess he drew the short straw. Timothy's like, oh, I did that once, I'm not going back. So Titus now takes the letter, he brings it to the Corinthians, and it's called his painful letter. Why is it a painful letter? Because it delivers a hard word. Why does it deliver a hard word? Because Paul is harsh, because Paul wants to disadvantage these people, because Paul is angry and he wants to condemn them. Is that who he is? That is not the gospel. Hard words, yes, but for purposes of life, for purposes of freedom, for purposes of deliverance. That's the point of the hard words. They're spoken in love. And it's a love that is so overwhelming that they cannot 
not be said. So Titus delivers the letter, and Paul's back here going, ah, what's going on? Until Titus returns and brings a report. So if you're still with me, why does this matter? Well, it matters because it'll help us make sense of the passage of Scripture that we're going to look at. So that's, that's good. But it matters, I, th- I think, also because we kind of look, you know, and I think this is our tendency at these Corinthians, and frankly, we are completely untouched by temple cultic meals, aren't we? I mean, it's like, man, there is nothing to that for me. So we kind of look, this is what we tend to do at these Corinthians, and we think to ourselves, what is the matter with these people? Like, are they just stupid? I mean, like, come on, guys, this is a no-brainer. Hey, guess what? You can't participate in a meal that's a part of a worship service to a pagan god if you're following Jesus. That is no bueno according to the Scriptures, and it's a total no-brainer. Like, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to figure that out. Okay, that's what we do. Not so quick. Hang on. What else do you not have to be a Bible scholar to know? Okay, so let's run through a few. And it's good that you're seated. It's a hard word. You ready? You don't have to be a Bible scholar. For example, speaking of cultural gods, to know that absolutely everything that we have, all of our money and possessions, all of it, 100% of it, came from God. And in fact, you don't even need the Bible to know that. If there is a God, if He is the Creator God, if He has created me, and He has instilled within me all of my energy, all of my abilities, all of my talents, all of my intellect, whatever else in addition to that that I use to gain or to produce, if He's done that and sustains me and measures out how many days I'm going to get good grief, of course, it all came from Him. Otherwise, you're like a farmer trying to grow crops without land or seed. Doesn't happen. So then if it all came from Him, then it all belongs to Him. And if it all belongs to Him, then who am I? Automatically, I'm not the owner, I'm the manager. And what am I supposed to do with it? Well, of course, it's partly to facilitate my life. But I need to manage it in a way that honors the one who owns it. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to know that. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to know that when He comes to us with the God of this world that that we seek our identity and our significance in, all of those things, our culture worships money. Every culture does. And here's what our culture does. It comes to us with a lie. And here's the lie. The lie says your significance, yeah, how much of this can you make? Your identity, how much of this can you get? Your worth, Well, what are you worth exactly? Because the two things are tied together. Your safety, your security. And the gospel comes and says, now let me give you a hard word on that one. Uh, Yeah, none of that works. Your significance is found through faith in Jesus who has purchased your significance, has made you a son or daughter of the King who is the Lord, Lord God Himself. That's who you are. We sang it. And He is our good, good Father. Why? Because He loves us enough to tell us the truth about these things. And so He comes to us and says, for the good of your own soul and to break you from the idolatry that we all, every one of us struggles with, you are to take 10% of the 100% that I own and that belongs to me. And you're to give that. You're to invest that into my kingdom. And that is the base level starting place of generosity in the Scripture. That's shocking, right? It's the training wheels of generosity, honestly. It's where it begins. 
It's called tithing, or we say level one giving. But then beyond that too, what does he do? He comes in the Bible and you see him again and again asking his people, you know what, help this family. You know what, be passionate about this. Give to this, give to this, do this, do that. All of these different things as you walk with Christ and the Spirit leads. Those are the kinds of things he comes to us. And so we're very quick to to judge the Corinthians, I think, or maybe it's just me, on something that doesn't touch me, that doesn't affect me. That's that's a total no-brainer. What's their problem? Okay, but what about the things that aren't total no-brainers for us? What about the God of sex? I mean, I think it's pretty obvious that in their culture, they worshipped the God of sex by temple prostitution, among other things. But so do we. We do the same thing, you know, and the culture comes to us and it teaches us about sex, does it not? And it tells us things that we know by our own experience aren't true, but we believe because in our passions we want to. We're overrun with passions. We are all of us passionate. Trust me on that one. And it's the strongest part of our souls. We overrun what we know to be right and true. The most incredibly brilliant people do the most incredibly stupid things in moments of passion. We're subject to these things. And so we want to believe the lie that it's nothing more than a physical act. It's like eating a sandwich. It's like going for a run. Even though we know by our own experience, at least most of us, that the deepest wounds of our hearts and souls have come as a result of our own or of someone else's violation of God's ethic on sex. And so then the Lord comes to us and says, okay, well, listen, I made this thing, so I think I know a little about it. And here's the truth about it. It is powerful. It is really, really powerful. And it is powerfully good, and it can be powerfully destructive. It's far deeper. It's far more intimate. It's far more personal. And it employs every aspect of your being, not not just the physical aspect of your being. And so then I'm going to deliver a word to you that in our day and age is laughable. Like you say this and people are going, oh, good grief, I should just check my emails. Like, this is bizarre. Is it? God says, no, no, no. To free you from the enslavement that will come if you give way to all of your passions and live according to the culture, then sex is for married people. It's nuts, right? Or is it? What do the hard words do? The hard words deliver. What do the hard words do? The hard words free. How are the hard words spoken from a God who wants to take away from you? Good grief, He gave His Son. He's a giver. He's altogether generous. He needs nothing. He desires our best. Alright, last one. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to know that the Bible sends us off into the world with a command to make disciples. And you don't have to be a Bible scholar to know, just a person who's honest, that the reason that we all of us, me too included, okay, struggle with this is is because we fear man more than we fear the Lord. We do, you know, we don't want to be the weirdo at work. You know, we we don't want to create an awkward situation. We don't want to introduce tension between us and this particular family member. I I get it. I I know how it works. I I hear it. I, I see it. I... I think here's the bottom line, and I stole this idea from Matt, and I thought it was brilliant. You have the canon of Scripture. Are you familiar with that word canon? It means, it means read. It's a measuring rod. You have the canon of Scripture, which is the Bible, and which is ever truthful and never changing. And then you have the canon of our culture, which, to be honest, is rarely truthful and therefore is always changing, evolving. 
And the question that, you know, the Corinthians had to deal with and the Ephesians had to deal with and the Philippians had to deal with and every generation of Christians have had to deal with, including us. Okay, the question is, which canon is going to define our lives? Like, which one are we going to live out? And the obviously Christian answer is, but it's a hard answer when you work through its implications. It's the canon of the Bible. And that includes the parts that, all right, you know, we'd rather not talk about. But why does God say those things? Because He loves us. Because His wisdom transcends our own. Because He would have us to be free and to know His joy, to find His protection, and truly to be light in a culture that needs to see a people live differently, worship different gods. So with all that said then, we pick up our study today in 2 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 11, where Paul says this, and just follow it all. He says, we, meaning I, Paul, and my little band of brothers like Timothy, like Titus, that I'm planting churches with and occasionally sending letters by, have spoken freely to you Corinthians. Boy, has he ever. <laughs> and has said some hard and difficult things. But now notice the heart that the hard words came from. It's like unto the heart of the Lord. He says, our heart is wide open to you indeed. He says, you are not restricted by us in this relationship that we have. You're restricted in your own affections. And so he says, in return, and then there's this little parenthesis. He says, I speak as to children. Here's what he's not doing. He's not demeaning them. He's not saying, I speak it to a group of adults who ought to know better and they're acting like that's not what he's saying. He's coming and he's saying, guys, let me remind you of who I am in regard to you. I, spiritually speaking, fathered you in the gospel. I brought you into the faith. I come to one whose heart is wide open to you, who loves you so much that he's willing to risk by saying the difficult things. And that is an act of love. And if you've ever experienced that, you know that that is in fact the case. You know, like we all have people in our lives, you know, and we watch them and we can see the road they're on, can't we? Better than they can. It's fascinating. It's like we are most blind to the road that we ourselves are on and other people can look at it far more objectively and go, good grief, where's that going to go? And we watch them and the train wreck is coming, you know, and we see the train wreck coming and what do we do? Well, it depends. How much do we love them? Do we sit back and go, oh man, you know, I hope they get that figured out. Somebody needs to say something about this. I hope they see they're about to drive off the cliff. Or do we make the risk and come to them as an expression of love? Is that not what it is? It's unloving to watch them drive off and to just sit down with them and in humility as people who don't themselves have it all figured out and who are themselves on a road that they're also probably somewhat blind to say, hey man, you know what? You're on a road here and uh, I want to ask you something. I mean, let me just kind of lay the road out for you. Interact with me on it. Fill me in where I'm missing something, but I, as I see it, I think it's this, and I see this, and I see this, and I see this. Let me ask you something. Where's the road going to end? You tell me. You diagnose it. Because I think it ends going off a cliff. What can I do to help you? 
Paul is saying, that's the kind of love that I have for these people who, spiritually speaking, are my own children, and I can't stand by to watch them go off a cliff, but instead, I'm going to say the hard things to them. Why? Because I'm angry, because I'm harsh, because I want to hurt. No, no, no. Because I love them, and I want to see them thrive and have life. And so again, he says... In return, I speak as to children because I am your father. And he says, please, widen your hearts also to us. And here's what their widening of their hearts in a very practical way will look like. It will look like obedience to Paul's hard words. Now, why do I know that? Because of what he says next. He says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Here's what that doesn't mean in this particular instance. It does not mean don't get married to somebody who is an unbeliever. Not here. Now, it does mean that in 1 Corinthians But here's what he's saying here. He's going, guys, our lives should be different from the lives of unbelievers. Don't yoke yourself. Don't join yourself to the same idolatrous practices. Don't love and pursue and live for the same things and with the same level of passion and frankly, for the same purposes as everyone else. Don't do it. We're to be different, he says. And now he gives us all of these contrasts that help us to understand just how different And listen to him, they're astonishing. He says, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Jesus, has Christ with Belial, which is just another name for Satan? And so then he brings it back around and he says, okay, so what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? And now notice this because it speaks specifically to the issue. He says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? You're like, no, I'm kind of missing that. What what, what does that mean? Like, what is the temple of God? It's not a what, it's a who. And if you are a believer in Jesus, you have the Spirit of the Lord, and the temple is you. He'll say that in a second. He said it even more clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, For you are not your own. Do you hear that? You've been bought with a price. Therefore, here's the conclusion. He says, glorify God in your body. With everything that you say, with everything that you do, with everywhere that you go, with every decision that you make, with every thought that you have, you're like, good grief, I can't do that. No, I know there's grace to cover all the failures. That's the wonderful piece. But but we're to grow in this. What agreement has the temple of God, he says, with idols? He's saying, I know that's tough in your culture, my goodness, but but what I want for you is life. And so then Paul says that we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, and now he quotes from the Old Testament, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, and here's the necessary conclusion, do what? Go out from their midst. Go out from the midst of unbelievers. That doesn't mean don't work with them, don't hang out with them, don't have them. with them. That's not the point at all. It's not like you need to separate. The church needs to separate itself out from the culture and from the That's We're deployed to go out into the city. He's saying go out from them in the sense that you need to worship a different God. And that needs to be apparent in the way that you live. Go out from their midst in that sense and be separate from them in that sense, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. And then through faith in Christ is the idea, I will welcome you and I will be a, here it is, father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And here's the deal with kids and and their biological dads. It's true for moms too, but God uses the image of a father here. Uh, You know what? We look like them, don't we? 
I mean, the older I get, the more frequently now I get up and I look in the mirror, you know, and I'm tired and maybe I haven't shaved yet. hope my dad doesn't listen to this. But, and I look in the mirror and I think, good grief, there he is. It's him, it's, it's him, that's it. Except I have hair, praise Jesus. Like he has none, and I know that's a bummer for some of you. Sorry, I just offended half the men, but not going to lie, hair is a great thing. So, but the point is that as I get older, I'm not looking less and less like Him. I'm looking more and more like Him. And so it is with our Heavenly Father. I mean, we know we're not going to grow in our physical likeness unto God, but my goodness, as we grow in our relationship with Him, as we mature in the faith, which is what we're called to do, babies grow up. Children grow up in every way. So we're called to do. And so now what happens? Well, as I learn to walk with Him, as I grow with Him, my heart becomes more like His heart. My passions become more like His passions. My desires become more like His desires. My actions and conduct would flow out of a heart that's ever more and more becoming more like His, conformed to His own. And so then Paul says, since we have these promises, beloved... Let us do what? Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord, which as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, is not, at least for the believer in Jesus, and this is awesomely wonderful news, a cringing terror that we have when we walk into the presence of God and see Him for who He is, and therefore see ourselves for who we really are, not in comparison to our neighbor or whatever we see on the news, but in comparison to Him, and He's the standard. Why is this not a cringing moment for us? Because of what the Lord has accomplished for us in Christ. He's obeyed for us. He's he's won the victory for us. He's, He's paid the penalty for us. He's done all of these things. And so it's not a fear in that sense, but it is a fear that is an overwhelming sense of awe in light of who we're dealing with when we deal with the Lord God Almighty. And here's the thing, as I said a few weeks ago, look, if God displayed Himself in a visible way, here, right now, all of us, everybody, would immediately be on our face. And let me be very clear as to what we would not be thinking about. We would not be thinking about the great and surpassing worth and value of all the things that in this moment, to be honest, we worship and serve above Him. That would be dust. But that's a hard word. But what is it meant to do? Not to condemn, but to lead to the one in whom there is no condemnation. And in whom there is freedom and wisdom and protection and life. But only if, as with these Corinthians, we stop picking and choosing God's word as though we stand above it and decide, you know, which parts apply but humble ourselves in light of who we really are and let it speak to us and let the Spirit produce godly grief which leads to repentance, which leads to life change, which is what happened for these guys. And we know that because beginning in verse 2, he says this. He says, Make room in your hearts for us, for we have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have taken advantage of no one. And they knew this. I do not say this, Paul says, to condemn you. It's not a condemning word. For I said before that you are in our hearts. To do what together? To die together. And he's not saying, listen, we're all going to line up and go down to the Colosseum and feed ourselves willingly to the beast. That's not it. I'm not talking about a physical death. We together, as the temple of God, as the church of God, as the people of God, 
are going to learn how to die to ourselves together and to the gods of this world that we might truly live different kinds of lives that behold and shine forth the light of Christ. We are going to die together so that we might live for Jesus is the idea together. And so he says, I am acting with great boldness toward you. His love is impelling him to do that. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in all our affliction. He says, I am overflowing with joy. But why? Why, Paul? Well, now he answers it. He says, for even when we came into Macedonia after sending you my painful letter by the hand of Titus, our bodies had no rest, but were afflicted at every hand, at every turn, fighting without and fear within as we awaited your response. But God who comforts the downcast, or really the humble, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you as he told us of your longing and of your mourning and of your zeal for me so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you, here it is, grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. I sent it off and thought, oh my goodness, what have I done? This might be it. But now he sees how it went. But I do not regret it now, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, that's not fun, but because you were grieved into doing what? Into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us, but only gain in why? Because here it is, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Godly grief is not me going, man, I don't really feel great about this, but I'm going to keep doing it. I'm not going to lie. Or I feel guilty about this. I wish I could, but I'm not going to stop. What is it? It's a turning. It's a change in orientation. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief, I, and I feel bad about it, but it's not going to produce a turn in me, produces what? Death. And by implication, regret. He's saying, look, in the end, when we do, in fact, stand before God, we're not going to go, man, I'm so glad that I engaged in all of this idolatry, whatever that is but we will be so glad that we repented and, and that we turned and that we found that which is true life in the Lord. And I'm going to stop there because I think you get the point, which is that the hard words, the difficult ones, the, the ones that, you know, in advance, we, we know already we'd rather not hear. They're the ones we most need to hear. They're the ones that create pain, yes, but not for the purpose of creating pain, but for the purpose of creating relief and freedom and joy if we stop standing above the Word and step below it where it is our rightful place and say, all right, Lord, I think I know what you're going to say because every time I open the Word of God, you say it, or I hear a song on the radio or somebody says something at church and I, I get it, I know what it is. Okay, okay, so all right, speak for your servant listens. Produce in me a godly grief that creates in me a turning that brings real life change. So with that in mind, let me ask you question number one, all right? So what words of Scripture are hard for you? You know what they are already, didn't you? I mean, as soon as I said that at the beginning, you went, oh, good grief, there it is. You know it. All right. Why? Why are they hard? Let me ask it differently. What is it about the canon of our culture that you are believing and entrusting more so than the canon of the Bible? 
which comes to you from an all-knowing, all-wise God who approaches you with open arms and with, with an open heart, who's manifested His love on the cross and who only brings to you the words that you find difficult to bring you freedom and life, that you might have joy and protection. And I think maybe a clue is found in the ways that we can identify that our lives look just like the lives of everybody else. In other words, we love the same things, we pursue the same things, we chase after the same things, and here's the key, with the same passion and for the same purposes. You know, I really think if I can get enough of this, or if I can do this, if I can have, then I'm going to be significant, then I'm going to have value, then I'm going to be safe, then I'm going to be whatever. So, what words of Scripture are hard for you? And, more important question, why? Work that through. Secondly, where is your repentance being motivated by a worldly grief as opposed to godly grief that produces a turning? It's not, I feel sorry about it, I'm going to keep going. But it's, no, I need to get some help, man, and I need to actually deal with this. I need once and for all to drive a stake in the ground and make my way in this direction. Okay, lastly, who do you need to deliver a hard word to? Because you've been watching their life and you're pretty sure you know where the cliff is and they're getting close. Who do you need to love enough to, in humility, talk to? And say, hey, help me understand this because the way that I'm seeing it anyway, I see this and then I see this and, I, and it looks like you're going down this road. Where do you think it's going to end? Because that is an act of compassion. That is an act of love. That's a hard word, and it's hard to deliver hard words. Like, nobody loves that. But it's life. The unloving thing is to go, I hope they figure it out. So who do you need to deliver a hard word to? The hard words are the best words if we allow them to have the effect they're supposed to have in us. Godly grief, repentance, turning, and life. Okay? All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank You that, um, that we are the possessors of Your Word. And we thank You that it is a book not of condemnation, but of life. We thank You, Lord, for the truth that You speak to us in Your Word, which is not altogether complimentary of us all the time. Uh, there is bad news about us. It's worse than we know. But in Christ Jesus, it is exceedingly and abundantly far better than we know. Lord, You have purchased rebellious creatures, undeserving folk, for Your glory, for our good. God, let us humble ourselves before You. Remember who You are and who we are and put ourselves in the appropriate place in respect to Your Word. And let us simply open our lives to You and say, all right, look, you know, you know what I don't want to hear about. But that may be the thing I most need to hear about. My life is not my own. So speak for Your servant listens. Give us that kind of faith and humility and then work within us godly grief. Not that we might be grieved, but that we might be turned, that we might repent and know life. Do these things, we pray, and whatever else you want to do. In Jesus' name, amen.